You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and this month we're focusing on difference making, the subject of a new book that launched this week by Tom Vandrar and Emily Liebtag. This episode, we're pleased to speak with Joanne McEachin, the founder and CEO of The Learner First, about her new book. The welcome to her new book promises that all of your students can learn to contribute, to add to the world in all manners of ways. When they do, then no matter their plans or pursuits, they'll have what they need to find success. Her book, The Depth Veil Detectives and the Great Education Crisis, A Guide to Contributive Learning in Schools, is a story for educators, parents, and students about using your powers, aka what you're learning, for good. It can help you discover what it takes to contribute and how to make well-being, meaning, and fulfillment the ultimate outcomes of all that you do. Schools can commit to contributive learning so that all students learn how to add to the world. Let's listen in to her conversation with Tom. Well, Joanne McKechn, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. It's lovely to be here with you, Tom. It's uh, great to have you join. Thanks for uh, joining from New Zealand. Uh, Joanne, I want to jump straight in and I want to talk about your email signature, which is, I think, the most remarkable email signature that I've ever received. I noticed it in, uh, in our last correspondence, but it says, meaning and fulfillment is the new wealth and contribution is the only way to earn it. Where, where did that come from? Well, I think it's come from the fact that I've been working with children for the last sort of 34, 35 years and listening to them and watching them. They don't want money anymore. They don't want the trappings of wealth anymore. What they want is to support each other and they want a better world. And I think sort of my observations over time have led me to that conclusion. And they, every time I work with kids, they don't want the same things as what I wanted when I was growing up. I think you and I probably were led to believe that if we did the 40-hour week and we you know, worked hard, we would have this retirement that would lead us to this great world, but it didn't work out like that. Right. So working with kids, they've sort of told me and they've taught me, they've taught me this, they've taught me that they want a better world and that means that we contribute to each other's life and we make it a better place. So for me, the new, world, the new wealth has nothing to do with possessions and ownership of things. It's actually how much do we contribute to each other and how much do we contribute to humanity and that's the new wealth that they're looking for. So... For me, it just it just it just sort of evolved over time. I I love that sentiment and the the idea of contribution. How do you think about that? Um, what does that include? What does that mean to you? Well, I think for me, it's about the outcomes. I mean, I've done a lot of work in whole system change with countries all over the world, and I think for me, the outcomes of the world really every, everywhere I go, people are looking for self understanding, knowing who you are, how you fit into the world, and how you can can contribute to humanity. And the next one's really around connection. How do you connect yourself, each other, your family, the world around you, and your purpose for life? Knowledge, what knowledge do you need to know yourself and what you want to do to be the best person you can be? And then sort of the competencies to, to be alive and, and that kind of thing. So it's really sort of, once you sort of figure that out, then that's really about how you can contribute. And at the moment, we sort of tell kids that if you do this pathway and you get all of this knowledge stuffed into your head, then you can become this. But actually, not everybody wants to become this. So it's really, once you figure out how you can contribute, then everybody can contribute. So everybody feels good about what they can contribute rather than us saying, that's what you should look like or that's what success looks like. So contribution was a word that my co-author, Matt Kane came up with when we were sort of really sort of nutting out, what does it look like when we figure out how do we succeed and how do we look, look like success in the world today? And he's, he's the one who came up with the word contribution, so I give him full credit for that. 
Well, I, I love that term. I was afraid in my own writing of using that term that people would think in, in the U.S. in terms of donating to a charity mm. in contribution, but you're really talking about making the world better, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about when we add to the world. I think it's, um, you know, so, so often we think about, I've, I've often thought about how people go in to say they want to go into schools and fix them. So they want to go in and go into the school gates and go in and fix them up and clean them up and sort them out and make them a better place. Whereas I talk about, let's get out of the school gates and go and contribute to the society that we live in. If we go outside and we contribute and we do things with our communities and we fix the problems that are actually real life ones with our people who are alive and well now, and do things and contribute to actually what's going on in the world, that's what's going to help us survive. That's what's going to help us heal as a world. That's what's going to make us um, a better world if we actually do the things that are real. And it's only by contribution that we can do that. And I know that I feel better when I'm doing something that's helping somebody else. If I'm doing something that's only about me, 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 I'm only going to feel good for a short period of time. But when I contribute and do something that's going to help somebody else, I know that that feeling of happiness and gratitude lasts a lot longer. Duran, your new book, instead of an introduction, has a welcome, which I, I love. Uh, but it, it begins uh, by saying, all of your students can learn to contribute, to add to the world in a manner, uh, all manner of ways. When they do, then no matter their plans or pursuits, they'll have what they need to find real success. I thought that was a beautiful uh, opening sentiment. Um, how did you make that discovery? You said it was uh, just through working with schools. Any, anything else that you can add? Because it's a, it's a beautiful thought. Yeah, I think, it's, I think when I was principal of my second school, I, we created this, um, this afternoon or this day called electives. And this was way, way back. I mean, I'm talking, you know, a long time ago because I'm old now. And it was, I, I was watching um, when teachers were able to teach something that they were really passionate about and when kids were able to elect and choose something that they could join in with. And this was, this was such a long time ago. And what I noticed is, is that the kids came to school every day. The teachers were excited. And I would almost see the kids in school, it would almost bounce. There was this energy that would just, like, the kids would come in, the teacher would come in, and there was this bouncing feeling, and there was nobody ill on those days. There was no absenteeism. There was nothing that would go wrong on those days. And, and I noticed that, and I thought, there's something going on here. What is this about? When we start to teach in this way, when we start to do things in this way, that there was nothing was impossible. Kids would make, move heaven and earth to make things happen. Teachers would move heaven and earth to make things happen. So I figured out that if somebody really wanted to do something, they would find a way to make it happen. And that's the same for us all. So if we really want something, we'll find out how to do it. If we really want to be a space adventurer, we will find a way to make it happen. If we really want to be a chef, we will find a way to make that happen. And if we allow each of our students to really uncover what is their great passion or what they really want to do, we can help them to make that happen. But if we tell them they all have to be one thing, we're never going to help them make that happen. We'll only make the ones who really want to be that happen. But the rest we just forget about and they feel like, they, feel like not, they can't contribute and they haven't got anything good about them. But if we let everybody find what they want to do, then there's that huge passion is unleashed across the whole school and across the whole system and then across the whole world. Now we uh, love that idea. We called it uh, the, the new superpower um, I guess you call it contributive learning, is that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the name we've called it, yeah. Uh, but I love that sense that um, as a result of contributive learning, they'll have what they need to find real success. Yeah. Um, so you uh, grew up in New Zealand? Yes, that's right, yeah. 
and uh, close to University of, what is it, um, Waikato? Waikato, yes, pronounced Waikato. Yes, that's where I grew up, yeah. Born and bred here in New uh, Zealand. And so you went uh, to school close to home? Yes, I was born, born in the South Island of New Zealand, and um, I'm part Māori, so I have um, strong links to Waitaha, um, Ngāti, Ngāti Mōmoi and Ngātahu which means I trace myself back to the 16th century here in, in New Zealand and mm. um, have a very strong affinity to First Nations and um, people of Indigenous descent. So I think a lot of my work is definitely coloured on the, on the viewpoint of that we all can contribute, that we all have a place in this world and that we all have value to add. And I think so. I think um, a lot of my work through education has been coloured definitely by that, that, that viewpoint. I'd Joanne, you've written a, a number of books, and um, I think they all indicate a really strong sense of purpose, um, a focus on measuring what matters. Um, do, do you think you developed those in your years uh, leading two schools in New Zealand? I think so, because what I, what I understand is that if you measure what matters, then people will focus on that. We can spend all our time pretending that we're differentiating and pretending that we're, we're designing for students and their needs. And then we get to the point of differentiation, and then we have this brick wall and we pretend that it's, we're still doing the right thing for kids. But so as far as I'm concerned, this is, unless we change what we measure, unless we change how we assess, we're just playing around the edges and just tinkering. So for me, unless we change how we assess and unless we change what, what we measure, then we're, we're just playing. And it really does make no difference. So for me, unless we change that, unless we really are going to differentiate all the way through to assessment, then there's no point doing any system change whatsoever because we're not valuing what we say. Now, every single system change I've ever done with any group of people anywhere in the world, everybody talks about what they value. And usually that's around um, relationships. It's around um, empathy. It's around looking forward. It's around um, thinking about caring for each other. It's around technology. It's all the things that we've talked about that are really valuable. Yet, not one school has measured has had the opportunity to be able to measure that through system work. So, for me, it's around let's change what we measure and let's describe now what success looks like in today's world and let's measure that. Then we can start to see a system shift. And I guess the only other thing I would say with that is that are we brave enough to say? that if children can show us what they know in their way, is that acceptable for us as adults? That's the really big system shift that I'm looking for. And that's how we really get equity. So for me, measurement counts for the biggest lever we have for change or lever, if I say it with the American accent. <laughs> so you don't think I'm talking about a relationship breakup. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you have two books on that subject of measuring what matters. Uh, the first was 2015, Making the important measurable, and then in 2018, um, measuring human return. Mm. Um, so maybe you could bring this to life um, with, with a bit of an example. In, in the U.S., uh, we've been quite preoccupied with these end-of-year standardized tests of reading and mathematics. Uh, when you talk about um, making the important measurable, what, what would be on your dashboard of uh, important things to measure, maybe add a little color on uh, in terms of the ways in which uh, you would hope those things would be measured. 
I would think that I would be, I would always see that there would be some sort of standardized test as part of that at, at this point. I think until we get to the stage where we, we're sophisticated enough to understand how to measure in different ways, then I would always think that there needs to be some, some standardized piece. But I, the way I would describe it, the best way, Tom, would be to say, if you go to the doctor and you run in, you drop your bag, you, you, throw, you throw everything around the floor and everything just spills out everywhere and you, you race it and you can't find a car park and you're 10 minutes late, they take your blood pressure and it's likely to be high. Right. They don't say to you straight away, right, you need open heart surgery tomorrow based on that one indicator. What they say is let's have a range of different tests and then let's synthesize that and make a decision based on all of those different data points. So for me, what I'm looking for is a range of different pieces of assessment before I make any judgment. And I would also say that there has to be self-assessment in that too. So my range of data points that I would be looking for would be, is there some self-assessment? Has the child actually had an opportunity to say what they know first? So firstly, am I giving equitable opportunity for a child to say, well, do they, have they had a chance to show me what they know? Secondly, has there been some peer assessment? Has there been some opportunity to discuss this across my peer group? Have we come to some moderate um, judgment across, is this, is this acceptable across, are we saying the same sorts of things? Then there might be an opportunity for some parent assessment or some discussion there. Um, there might be some opportunity for um, a, a practical example. There might be some opportunity for um, some design work. There might be some summative work. There might be some formative work along the way. But what I'm really saying is that there has to be multiple points of, of assessments before we make any judgment. At the moment, we, by, by making only one judgment based on a test, it's like saying, going to a mechanic and saying, oh, I can hear a little tap, tap, tap sound. The mechanic's saying to you, right, you need a whole new motor. Would you believe them straight away? No, you'd want some more evidence first. Right. So we're making these horrific judgments based on one point of data. So we want a lot more of the evidence before we make decisions about a child's life. So for me, it's having qualitative, quantitative, and a range of different assessments. And then the, the most important point for me, though, is the synthesis of that, saying all of these pieces of information together, what are they trying to tell me? Not just one piece, but a lot. So some people talk about that as triangulation. I talk about that as synthesis. And then it's not necessarily putting all the different pieces of weight on, on watch piece, but it's just humanizing it, saying what does this all mean together? So you, some people, you might, you might talk about using AI to do that. At this point, we've got to get a whole range of different pieces of data before we can sort of go to, go to that stage. And I know you're sort of starting to do some investigative work in that, which is pretty exciting for me to hear that. Uh, Joanne, you've had the opportunity to publish several books with Michael Fullan. We, we just had Michael on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Um, I, I'm curious how you would describe uh, the elements of deep learning and, and maybe you could add a little color commentary on what it's uh, like to write with Michael. Does, does, he, uh, does he actually get in uh, and, and do the heavy lifting, or is he more of a color commentary uh, kind of co-contributor? Oh, Michael's an amazing man. He's, of course, he's, a, he's, he's got a huge amount of experience across a wide range of areas. So I think um, you know, to be able to work with him has been a real honor and a privilege. And I think to sort of see that the depth that he can go to because he's had to work across a whole range of different systems. Right. So I think you know, to his wisdom is, is, is deep and across a whole, a, whole, a whole range of areas. So I think um, you know, what, I bring, what I brought to that team was the, the ability to sort of think across, the, uh, across sort of like the, um, the writing of the tools um, because that's the way I think. I think about how do, how do you describe success? And if you're wanting to describe success, how would you do that? 
So that's kind of my strength. His right. is around the leadership and being able to think about, okay, how, did, how would that look across the whole system? So for me, I think we had, I mean, we were able to connect in a way that was together. I mean, everybody works, everybody has their strength. And I think for me, like, I think, you know, we've talked about that before. It's that, you know, in a network and in a team, we all bring our strengths. Right. And I think that's, that's one of the things I'm very focused on now is that, no, there's no one single person who holds the answer to any, any um, success now. It's every single person has to contribute what their strength is. And if we all do that, then we're going to be successful. If we all try and if we all try to do it one person or one leader now, it doesn't work. It's it's all of us in this together to can't try and create the answers for the future. And that's sort of I talk about the collective cognition, where all of our minds together have been working. But now I'm definitely moving to more the collective consciousness where we've got the, the hearts and minds together. We were trying to figure this out because we need more than just our heads to work this through. We've got to actually work with our hearts as well. When you and Michael talk about deep learning, what uh, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, we've talked about it as that students being really competent in the world, being able to use the six C's and um, being able to sort of really um, be, be effective in the world and being able to display and use those competencies to be a successful person. And, you know, we've talked about that, that using those inoculates them against sort of mental health issues as they grow older. And so being able to be successful in the world is a really, um, you know, being able to be using knowledge, using the ability to be creative, using um, the skills of a critical thinker, being able to be, be in the world today rather than just having academic knowledge and not knowing how to access that. So I sort of talk about the competencies as, the competencies as learn and return, being able to, to, to be able to access knowledge, to be able to do, the, do those kinds of things. So for me, deep learning and deeper learning is really about being able to use what you know to be able to t return it to the world. Let's take a Quick look at your new book. It's super interesting. It's called mm -hmm. The Depth Fail Detective and the Great Education Crisis, A Guide to Contributive Learning in Schools. Um, why did you choose a novel format? Well, there's two reasons I chose a novel format. One of them was because I really liked my Iceberg is Melting um, by um, John Cotter. Um, and when I was a manager back in the Ministry of Education, well, a decade or so ago, I used to use that with my own teams because it was a novel way of actually getting people to understand their own character and to think about what they were contributing to a team. And so that really affected me as a manager and a leader myself. So I really kind of wanted one way of helping schools to really figure out how could they, how could they do this work. The second one was that I know that with Measuring Human Return, it's a really deep and dense book. There's a lot of information in there and there's a lot of unpacking to do. And I know that, you know, it's, I, I kind of describe that as a really chewy book. So it's, it's going to take people a long time. I, I sort of say it's going to take people, it, it, it's an it's, it's a, it's a eight years worth of reading book because there's a mm. lot of work. It's going to take a long time for people to unpack that. But it, it's worth doing if you really want to make the change because it's, it's, it's a long period of time to take change you know, for a system. So this is the one to, if you want to do this with your, with your staff in a, in a, um, a, a staff reading situation and an easier way to, to break, break yourself into it in a little bit more light-hearted way, but it also takes you to the seriousness of how we can do the change, but also gives you the idea that kids actually can take a lead role in this change and that we can do this, that there's possibilities, that it is real, it can, be, it can happen, and a different way of attacking it and coming into it from the lens of through the eyes of the kids, through the eyes of some of our teachers who sometimes get a little bit stubborn and some of us sometimes might want to look at it from a different, different viewpoint. 
So you, you very cleverly worked in a five-phase change process uh, in, into the story. So I'd love to just recap those really quickly. The first two points, phase uh, number one is start with yourself. Uh, who are we really? Mm-hmm. And number two is pinpoint your purpose. Why are we here? So mm-hmm. why, why is it important for a team to start with that idea of um, who are we and why are we here? Well, first of all, who are we is often, often forgotten. Like we, we sometimes just gloss over that because we think we know each other. But I can tell you, Tom, every time I do a session with people and I say, no, who are you? And then I say, no, who are you really? And you go to that next step, who are you really, really? It's, um, and you discover who we are. It's quite different. And so like I have a series of questions that we ask people and actually start to really get to know each other because we often ask the kids stuff about themselves. We don't really get to know each other as to who we really are. So let's, let's get rid of the pretense and let's get to know each other really for who we truly are. So let's figure out who we are at an at a, at a individual level, at a school level, and at a classroom level and as a community. Then, so figuring it out, first of all, who are we really? And then, so what are we really doing here? What do you really want out of this? What, what, why would we be doing this? What's the, what's the whole point? And actually sort of being really honest about it. So what am I doing here as a teacher? What am I doing here as a learner? What am I doing here as a school? And what's the, what's the point of this? And actually really being honest about it and, and no, no, no garbage anymore. Like, so if we're going to be here, why should we be doing this? And let's get rid of all the stuff we don't want to be doing and let's not pretend anymore. So it's, I call it radical honesty and just no more garbage. Let's, let's get down to If we're going to help these kids, how are we going to do it? I, I love that. Um, schools are um, they're strange and wonderful entities in that they're, I, I think of them as sedimentary. They, they, they're these sort of inherited layers of policies and traditions. And unless we just say, let's pause and ask this question, who are we and why are we here? You don't really unpack um, those, those layers. And yeah. so I, I, I love the fact that you start with uh, – what are unusual questions, uh, right, of identity and purpose. And then the next two questions are um, dive into outcomes. Uh, what do we want? And plot your position. Where are we now? So why dive into outcomes? Well, it's, it's I think a lot of us, we think we know where we're going. And actually, what do you really want? You know, so, so we, we say that, it's like a kind of what I said earlier, we say this is what we want. We say that we want to have, we want to have happy kids. We say that we want to have a good, healthy society. We say that we want to have, um, you know, every parent says they want their kids to be happy at school, yet we go and measure maths. Right. We say that we want, you know, we want to have healthy well-being for our teachers, yet we go and then we do performance management on them. We say that we do want this, but then we go and do something else. So what I say is like, so what do you actually really want? And what does success look like now? So then that's what we're going to measure. That's how we're going to do it. So actually, what do you really want? And then secondly, and then the next part of that is, so, so where are we now? Let's plot our position. So what are the actual true results? So often I'll look at a country's results and I'll say, okay, so here's your academic results. Here they're going up, 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 sneaking up, you know, 1% at a time or half a percent at a time. And let's have a look at your mental health results. Oh, let's look at your suicide rates. They're going up, 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 up. Here's your mental health. Oh, 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 look, they're climbing and they're meeting in the middle. And just but generally in most countries, that's what's happening. And we're spending more and more on education, trying to squeeze up, more and more on mental health, you know. So, so we're, we're climbing together beautifully. We're having this lovely big kaleidoscope of crashing. So let's face the results and say exactly where we are and right. what do we want to do about it. So let's, again, let's be honest. All right. The next phase is that you invite teams to commit to contribution. 
So what, what does that look like? Why? Well, it's, it's a really interesting question. This, and I've just been interviewed by actually four different governments to, I do, to, to sort of talk about how does whole system change really work. And you know my biggest answer, Tom, now? As I say, no longer will I let a leader just tick the box and sign a piece of paper and say, yes, you can go ahead and work with my country or you can work with my system or you can work with my team. I say, you have to be there present. You have to buy in. You have to be a part of this. And the reason is, is this is now very personal. This is about personal commitment. And I'm saying, I have to personally commit. I have to personally be there. So do you. And it's about the leader. It's no longer, so like one country asked me, so how do we get everyone involved in forgetting that, you know, a bank to pay for it or somebody to pay for it? I said, well, I don't even want, I, I don't want anybody there who's not personally going to be engaged and actually in, in, involved in this. So when we talk about creating a change team, it's the parents who are going to be there. It's the kids, it's the teachers, it's the community. And we want personal engagement. This is about our lives. This isn't just about a process anymore. This is about people's real lives now. And so we used to just do this as a job or we used to just do this as this is how we're going to make things happen. So this is about commitment, about real life change. So unless we have people who are really going to do this and really do it properly and actually commit to contribute to changing real lives, then we're not interested, I'm not interested in working with them and nobody should be anymore. And it's a long-term process. It is a, uh, it's a beautiful, quick read. It's fun. It's funny. It's touching. Uh, it's called The Depth Failed Detectives in the Great Education Crisis, A Guide to Contributive Learning in Schools. Everybody should uh, buy it now, read it uh, together as a team. Um, Joanne, let me close with a, a couple other questions. Uh, tell us what um, Karanga is. Why are you Cut part of that? Yeah, Karanga is a global organization, and we're working with multiple countries, in fact, up to 70 countries now, where we are an alliance where we're looking at how do we, how do we challenge every government or every organization or every school everywhere across, across the world to shift their focus of education from the sole acquisition of knowledge to the much broader set of outcomes around social and emotional learning and life skills. So we're looking at sort of four areas where we're, where we're spending time in advocacy. We're looking at how do we actually help everybody understand the importance of that, the other one is creating a connected community where we're, where we're sharing ideas and learning from each other. So what works in one country might not work so well in another country, but why or why not? We're looking at how do we share implementation ideas? How do we, how do we get those ideas across the world? And then how do we sort of share the implementation support and research? So, so far we've connected with um, major organizations around the world. We have 70 people on our steering committee now. We're based mm -hmm. out of Austria. Um, and it's a huge organization and we encourage everybody to join us because we're gathering momentum and what's what we're seeing happen is is that we're hearing the voices from countries we haven't heard from one of the things we know tom is that us those of us in the western world we haven't always got it right when it comes to social and emotional learning and some of our other countries and some of our other cultures have got some really humongous gems that we can learn from and share and that's what we're starting to do so we're hosting conferences every month we're hosting social and emotional learning workshops um, and we're hearing voices that we want to hear from that we may not have understood from before. And that's creating a huge momentum globally. And it's karanga is a, is a Maori word. And it's, it's, it means a call out from the heart or a call out from the soul to welcome you, to say we're all welcome to do this work together. And it's a, it's a global call for us all to unite, to work um, from, from a point of um, understanding and, and unity that, that this is about um, a global calling for us all to change how we're educating our children to, to create a better world for everybody. No, it's a great organization. It's um, to find it online. It's K A R A 
nga.org. Uh, Joanne, where can people find you online? Um, they can find me at joanne at thelearnerfirst.com. Um, you might want to say it because my accent doesn't usually <laughs> do a very good job at saying it. So and it's the learner. Also on uh, Twitter at uh, the learner first. That's right, or or just at Joanne McKeckin. Uh That's great, um, Joanne. I want I want to close with this this beautiful sentiment that you've mentioned today. We are what we add. Mm. It's a, a beautiful sentiment. How, how could people? incorporate that idea into their school? I think if everybody would just consider that every day, if you tried to add something to somebody else's life rather than subtract, I think that's, you know, one of the things I try to do every day is like, how can I add something to somebody else's life? And every time I do, just consider how that makes you feel. And if that helps the way you are, then consider what you could do for somebody else every day. And if we're adding to everybody's life, then that creates a better world. So my challenge to the world is just add to the life of somebody else every day rather than subtract. It's a beautiful thought. Um, thank you so much for um, the books that you've written. Um, we appreciate your global contribution, Joanne. It's been delightful having you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. It's been a real pleasure, Tom. Have a fantastic day. A big thanks to Joanne for joining us from New Zealand. She mentioned writing several books with Michael Fullen. If you missed him on the podcast a couple weeks ago, check out episode 277 on leading in a culture of change. We've got it linked in the show notes and on the blog. This week, Tom's newest book, co-authored by Emily Liebtag, launched and is now available for purchase. Difference Making at the Heart of Learning explores new learning priorities centered around making a difference and a framework based on the 25 most important issues of our time. We know that students learn more when they feel a sense of purpose. With adults to help guide them, they'll be ready to make a difference and shape the world to come. We've got the book linked in the show notes so you can learn more about it and maybe get yourself a copy. We'll have more episodes to explore difference making this month as well. That's it for today, listeners. But before you go, don't forget to rate and review the podcast. And as always, thanks for tuning in. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off. <laughs>